All right, um, Johnny, you want to pray for us? Today we're going to find out when the Great Tribulation will be and who the Antichrist is, so it should be an easy time. Go ahead, John. <laughs> okay. Lord, we uh, again just uh, want to thank you, God, for the graciousness of being our creator, our maker. You've given us breath this morning again, and even the cool weather, Lord, is just a treat for us this morning. Thank you, Lord, that we are made in your image and to be image bearers, and we know that yet we fell in Adam and we are sinful, and confess that even this morning again, our need for you, and apart from your saving grace found in Christ, uh, Lord, we would be left in our sin and hopeless. But God, you've given us great hope, and, and we look to him even this morning, just depending upon um, not only our every breath and sustaining grace, but just that our whole day would be an offering to you, God, a, a way that we might live to glorify you, God. And we pray for help in that, and that uh, we might live in rightful, rightful response to the eternal inheritance you've given us in Christ. So thank you for your word, and we pray for Chad as he's teaching us these complicated things. You might make them easy to our minds and enlighten our hearts, open our hearts to the truth of God. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, so I just want to remind you a little bit of, just a little bit of a reminder of where we've been. Um, last week we talked about um, when Jesus will return, a couple weeks ago we said, when is Jesus going to return? said, no one knows, right? The things that we, the data we get from the New Testament, no one knows. We get the data that after some time, we get the data that after his patience, run, patience runs out and his people have repented, and then we get the data that it's near. So that's what we know, right, about his return. Um, no one knows when he's coming back, except the Father. We, it'll, it's near. It's after some time. It's when his patience has run out. Okay, so there you go, right? Um, that's what we know. Then I ask the question, what about a secret rapture? Just by remi- way of reminder, is there a secret coming of Jesus for his church prior to a seven-year tribulation? Now, people say, why do you call it a secret rapture? I never heard it called a secret rapture. And what's my answer? Anybody know? If you if you're here last week, why do I call it a secret rapture? Anybody know? What's the nature of the pre-tribulational rapture? If there is one, what's the nature of it? Nobody knows when it is a surprise. Okay, it's a surprise, but that and that's the nature of the turn of Christ as well. But but it's not visible. It's not visible. Um, all of a sudden, people are just gone, right? Uh, the whole world doesn't see Jesus in the heavens, right, With coming with the saints. There is no resurrection attached to it. You guys follow me on that, on the secret rapture? There's no re- so Jesus comes, he doesn't resurrect. Um, he resurrects the people that are there, but really the way they resurrect is, it seems like the living people just suddenly disappear. I'm guessing that some, at least some of the people who believe the secret rapture would believe the bodies come out of the grave, but um, that that would be strange as an invisible sort of thing. Um, so anyway, all right. Um, is there a secret rapture coming of Jesus for his church prior to seven of tribulation? I said no, because the consistent witness in the New Testament is to one republic, one excuse me, one public return, one public return of Jesus followed by the resurrection of the saints. In other words, there isn't this testimony in the scripture of. 
what looks like two or three returns of Jesus in the pre-tribulational rapture understanding. Um, there's, there's up to three returns of Jesus usually. Um, all right, we looked at some of the scripture, but today we'll look at probably the best, the best verse supporting a pre-tribulational rapture. We'll look at that today. Um, but we're going to look at it in the context of talking about the Great Tribulation. Okay, so what about the Great Tribulation? Now, some of you guys are asking, what about Matthew 24 and Luke 21? We're going to look at those texts. What about Daniel 77s? We'll look at that text. You know, in other words, Daniel 9. What about, um, so you, you have some of these texts you want to look at. We will. They're upcoming. I'll show you. Look, you, you see how much work I've done on them so far. What about the Antichrist? All right. What about Daniel 77? See all the work I've done? What about Romans 11? There you go. What about the Olivet Discourse? It's pretty good information. What about God's promises to Israel? Okay, now I've already done that. What is the manner of the second coming? What about the millennium? Final judgment of the eternal state. Okay, so those are the things that are coming up. Oops. Um, but you can see how much of it is done. I hate that this thing starts me right at the beginning every time. Um, all right. So, I want to get into those things, but they're going to come after this. All right, what about the Great Tribulation? It seems there will be an intensifying of tribulation and apostasy prior to the return of Christ. It seems there will be an intensifying of tribulation and apostasy prior to the return of Christ. There's some controversy as to whether or not Matthew 24 is about that, but let's go ahead and look at it since it talks about it. Let's also look at 2 Thessalonians 2. So, um, if you heard Dr. Beale um, over the weekend, you would have noticed that he talked about the fact that he's, he's somebody who believes we're in the tribulation now. We have been, but he believes it's going to intensify at the end. So, prior to the coming of Christ, he believes in sort of, if you will, some people call it great tribulation or the intensification of tribulation. But let's look at Matthew 24. I want to um, look at this passage and not Luke 21, but let me, let me give you a little bit of a contextual distinction as we look at Matthew 24, because something is being done differently in Matthew than in, in Luke. Look, look at um, 24.1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left... One here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So they're walking away from the temple. Jesus points, they're, they're talking about the buildings, you know, essentially pointing out, Luke tells us the grandeur of the buildings, etc., how beautiful it is. And, and Jesus says, see the temple, you know, this building you're looking at, it's going to be torn down. Not one stone will be left upon another. Now that gets fulfilled in approximately 40 years from the, the date of this statement. Um, that happens. What's interesting is um, is that Luke or excuse me, Luke sets us up a little bit different. Look at the questions they ask in verse three. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, "Tell us when these things will be." Now, what things? What things are they asking about? The destruction of the temple. The destruction of the temple. When will these things be? And now, notice the second question: And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Okay, so what do they tie the destruction of the temple with here in Matthew? His second coming. His second coming, 
the, the, the end of the age. So in Matthew, the disciples ask two questions. And so the question is, is in Matthew, is there a bit of a different context than in Luke 21? So keep your hand on Matthew 24 and look at Luke 21. Um, we'll come back to the Olivet Discourse later, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but just to give you a little bit of context. In some ways, Luke 21 is a more controversial passage. But look at verse 5 of Luke 21. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be here left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign that these things are about to take place? Now, John, did we turn on the recorder, by the way? Okay, great. Um, notice the difference in question. What do they ask about? When's, when, what are these things? When will these things be? What are these things? The temple being torn down. And the structure of the temple. And what's the second part of their question? What's the sign that what's taking place? Grammatically, what are they talking about there? What's the sign that the destruction of the temple is going to take place? Now, you notice a very different set of questions. In other words, here they're only asking about the destruction of the temple. And then Luke has, in 21, arguably, gives Jesus, Luke gives part of Jesus' answer, potentially, as opposed to Matthew 24, where they ask two separate questions. You guys follow me on that? And in Matthew 24, they're not just asking about the destruction of the temple, but they're also asking about the end of all things, the return of Christ. Here, they're just asking about the destruction of the temple. There's some controversy among commentators on whether or not in Luke 21, Jesus answers the second question from Matthew 24 because of parallel language. They don't know. They fight over it. Did he answer this second question in Matthew 24? Or, or as a result of all this, does Jesus just answer the question about the destruction of the temple? You guys follow me on that? In both places. And commentators argue over it. I'm not going to answer it this morning. And I likely won't answer it to your satisfaction when we actually do get to the Olivet Discourse. Just so you know. Because I still haven't answered it to my satisfaction. I change every week. All right. Anything you think about this every week? I do. <laughs> I think about almost every passage I can't figure out every week. And it, and, it never ends. All right. When, I, when I'm dead, God will tell me. But I, I seem to not be able to be satisfied with waiting. All right. <laughs> look at verse... Um, let's look at Matthew, back to Matthew 24. Verse 4. Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. You'll hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are at the beginning of birth pains. They'll deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you'll be hated by all nations for my sake. Now notice the statement about tribulation there in verse 9. Okay, I think it's entirely possible to argue that this is parallel to Luke 21, where he talks about the fact that they're going to be brought in front of judges and tried and delivered to death. Um, and it's also very possible to tie this to Acts, where these things actually happen to them. Right? Let's not forget that the, the apostles actually faced these things. Were there any famines mentioned in the book of Acts? 
Yeah. Were there warring nations during that time? Yes. Were there false Christs? Yes. We know that because we go through other New Testament letters and what is Paul, you, you, they, they mention another Christ and you follow right after them. You guys follow me on that? Okay. So there are false Christs, there are wars, there are famines. Agabus predicts a famine. Paul has to take a collection for the famine in Jerusalem. Right? Do, are they persecuted and killed for their faith in Acts? Yes. Okay? All these things. Could, could one call that a tribulation? Sure. Were they hated by all people groups? For his name's sake. Yes. Okay? You guys follow me on all that? So the question is, is Jesus even talking about something beyond the experience of the apostles and the early church in the book of Acts? Let's, you guys follow the debate? All right. Um, verse 10. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Did that happen in... Yes. Early church? Yes, it did. Many fell away. They betrayed each other. They hated each other, right? Um, we can point to elders who fell away. Paul has to write about Hymenaeus and Alexander who are leading people astray. They become heretics. Paul, you know, the, Paul talks about Demas, who in love with this present world has deserted me. In fact, all have deserted me, and I'm here alone. Send Mark to come help me out, which is a great passage at his death, that though he had this huge split between Paul and Barnabas over Mark, and Paul's like, Mark is not useful to me in ministry. He's useless. So he says, he's useless in ministry. And then in 2 Timothy, when he's at his deathbed, send Mark because he's useful to me. You go, wow, some kind of reconciliation occurred, which is a killer thing. All right, so it goes on. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Did that happen? Yes, in the New Testament, that happens. In their period, right? Okay. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel, the kingdom, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now the question is, when this gospel is preached throughout the whole world, right? This gospel, the kingdom, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. What's that talking about? Okay, but you notice, here's the tribulation. This tribulation is described. That could be talking about a future tribulation, or that could be talking about the normative experience of the church that we even see happening in the book of Acts and in the New Testament. Or it could be talking about some great tribulation at the end. you guys follow me on that? You see how commentators could get either one? They could come to either conclusion. All right? And then this question about, well, what's it talking about? The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to the whole world as a testament to all nations, then the end will come. you say, well, clearly that's tying it to the end of all things. But here's the question. Is it? Because it could be speaking about the end of the temple. Could be. Because that's one of the questions. When will these things be? And in Luke 21, when they ask about the destruction of the temple, they call it the end. The end of the temple. And for a for the Jewish mindset, you have to understand, there's something eschatological about the destruction of the temple, isn't there? The temple's destroyed. That's you guys follow me on that? Okay, That's apocalyptic. I, I've told our church it's comparable to when um, if, if suddenly Washington, D.C. was completely razed to the ground and ISIS planted a flag there, for all of us it would be apocalyptic as Americans. You guys follow me on that? Well, this is the same kind of thing. The temple is razed to the ground. That's apocalyptic. Right? That's big. And so 
what's the gospel of the kingdom proclaimed throughout the whole world as testimony to all peoples, then the end will come. There's some debate about this. How could there possibly be debate about this? Has the gospel of the kingdom been proclaimed to the whole world? Was it by the time the temple was destroyed? Was it proclaimed to the whole world by the temple no, no. time the temple was destroyed? No, it's the way you mean the whole, I guess. Yeah, yeah. World, Define your terms. What do you mean by world? What's the whole world? It doesn't seem like it's gone to the whole world, right? <laughs> All right. This is the Greek word oikomenos. Now I'm not going to put it up there, but the Greek word here is oikomenos. What what is that? It's it's it's. We also get the word house or economy from that. The whole world. Let me show you a couple other places where it's mentioned. You guys want to see it? Yeah. All right. So just to give you an example, look at Luke chapter two. Luke chapter two. I feel like I'm going to end up teaching the whole all of the discourse, so I can just take off that slide later. Luke chapter 2 and verse 1. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world, or the whole world, should be registered. Okay? Same word. Oikomenos. The whole world should be registered. So, who was Caesar Augustus registering? All the Roman Empire was he was he was he registering the entire globe? No, right? Just the Roman Empire. But how did they refer to that? The whole world, the whole world, because it's the known inhabited world. It's what they knew. Okay. All right. Let's go to Acts chapter eleven. I'll give you another example of it. Over here, Acts and chapter eleven. I think I'm in the right place. Let me look at my email to myself just a second. See if I've got the right place. Cause I'm... Yep, okay. Let's go. Okay. Acts chapter 11, verse 28. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. A great Remember I told you about the famines? Over all the world. Oikomenos, same word. And what, when, look at what he goes on to say. This took place in the days of Claudius. Okay, that's one of the Roman emperors. Now here's a question. Did, did, did the whole planet have a famine? No, he's talking about a famine in the Roman Empire, isn't he? Okay? Now, that's all good and well. So, the whole world word, the oikomenos, doesn't necessarily always mean the whole world. It might just be a reference to the Roman Empire. Or the inhabited world. All right? Uh, For those people. Remember, when all this stuff happens, there's a context. There are people hearing these messages. Okay? So, they're speaking in a way that's intelligible to them. Now, I know it's tough for us because... We have a very different view of the world in the 21st century than they had in the 1st century. But he's not speaking to 21st century audience, he's speaking to a 1st century audience. You guys understand the point there? Alright, now, so that's all good and well, but where does it ever say the gospel was preached to the whole world? Look at Romans chapter 10.
Um, all right, now, you guys are familiar with this passage. For everyone, verse 13, for everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. To go, Amen. How then will they call on him, in, on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he's heard from us? In other words, we've been out preaching and not everybody's believed. Got it? Okay. So faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Now, who is he talking about? Who's the they here? Romans 9 through 11. Who's he talk, what's the question he's answering? What happened to who? To ethnic Jews. Okay. They have not all believed. And he asks, have they not heard? But I ask, have they not heard? His answer, indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. You guys follow that? So so, so Paul's answer is, yeah, the gospel's been preached in all the world. They've heard. But they haven't all obeyed it. Um, same word there, by the way. His, the gospel's been preached to all the world. Now, what, what, what difference would that make for the Jews? Because the Jews were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. In fact, probably made somewhere between 10 and 20% of the Roman Empire's population. Saying it's been preached in the whole world. Um, okay, so the question becomes, if by Paul's day, potentially Matthew 24, 14 has been fulfilled, then maybe the end there is talking about the end of the temple or the destruction of the temple. You guys, you guys follow me? You guys follow that? Okay. Potentially Matthew 24, 14 is about the end of all things. It's potentially about that. It could be talking about two different things. The end of the temple and the end of all things because it's also true in prophetic literature that there's or apocalyptic literature that there are sometimes a dual sense to it to a text. Do you guys follow me on that? But the point is we have to make sure that we're doing due diligence to understand the text as they would have heard it. Because when you get to a verse, for example, like um uh, let's see here. Matthew twenty four and um, 34. Look there real quick. Matthew 24, 34. Truly I say to you, Hegenea Haute. What? This generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Hegenea Haute. Now this generation will not, uh, will not pass away until all these things take place. You might look at that verse and go, how does that make any sense? Because clearly, this is talking about the Great Tribulation at the end of all things, the return of Christ. It's all it's talking about. But that generation's been dead a long time. You guys, you guys follow the problem there? I actually wrote a paper on 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 Matthew's use of the phrase, Hegenea Haute. Who, who, who is the referent to, uh, who's referred to by the phrase Hegenea Haute? I... I did totally disagree with the paper I wrote now. I, it was a big paper I had to write um, it, it, when I was at Talbot, and uh, 
I wrote it was the generation that was alive at the beginning of these events. Um, so because I was a dispensational premillennial guy, I had to put this whole text completely in the future. And the difficulty there, of course, is if I put the whole text completely in the future, um, I got an A on that paper, by the way. But if I put this whole text completely in the future, what sense does it make to the audience who's there? Right? And and since I've gone back and reapprised that whole text, I'm I think I was wrong. All right, verse 15 in Matthew 24, because we're looking at this tribulation stuff. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who's on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who's who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it, for false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Now, just, just briefly... What could that be possibly talking about? The abomination of desolation in Daniel um, is, I think, first fulfilled under Antiochus Epiphanes IV in about 167-168 BC as he comes in and um, you guys have heard of the Maccabean Revolt and and some of those kinds of events. First and Second Maccabees in the apocryphal text of the Catholic Bible. Um, Those two books reference the history of that. That's why the Jews celebrate Hanukkah on the 25th of Chislev or December every year, they, during that time, they, seize, they celebrate Hanukkah or the Festival of Lights because in, one six, in the 160s BC, there was a man named Antiochus Epiphanes IV who came in, overthrew the Jews, took over the temple, stripped down the altar of sacrifice to Yahweh, put up an altar of sacrifice to Zeus, and began to sacrifice pigs there. And for the Jews, that was a fulfillment of Daniel... It talks about the abomination that causes desolation, right, in the temple. And I think Daniel describes Antiochus Epiphanes IV well enough to say, yeah, that's in fact one of the things that's being referenced to, at least one of the things being referenced to there, right? But this is my point about apocalyptic prophetic literature. That's referenced by, that's referenced to, I think, Antiochus Epiphanes IV. They eventually, the Maccabean revolt, the Maccabean priests eventually revolt against Antiochus, overthrow him, chase him out, cleanse the temple, set up an altar to Yahweh again. That happens on the 25th of December. That's why Hanukkah happens during that season in celebration of that. But even though that all happened, Jesus still talks about the abomination of desolation like there's still something to come with regard to it. You guys follow me on that? In other words, what I'm saying is, prophetically and apocalyptically, it seems to be there's at least more than one meaning to what's happening in Daniel with the abomination that causes desolation. So could that be true in Matthew 24 as well? Yes, it could be true in Matthew 24 as well. Okay, all right. Um, That's the debate. All right. Um, Incidentally, um, this kind of thing, some people argue that, well, when did the the abomination of desolation happen then? A lot of guys argue between 67 and 70 A.D. 
when General Titus surrounds Jerusalem. Clearly that's the reference in Luke 21, when General Titus of the Roman Empire surrounds Jerusalem and warns all the... and as he surrounds them, the, the Christians, remembering Jesus' warning, Josephus tells us, um, and others, that the Christians actually fled. Eusebius tells us that for sure. The Christians actually fled Jerusalem when General Titus was surrounding it because they said, hey, when you see the armies in Luke 21 surrounding Jerusalem, get out. Head for the hills. It's going to get ugly. The temple's going to be torn down, etc., etc. So the Christians flee. Um, and according to, according to the historical records we have, they, um, they all survived. No, no Christians were killed. But General Titus, surround, because they heeded Jesus' warning, but General Titus surrounds the city. They come in and sack the city. They destroy the temple, raise it to the ground. Um, they do sacrifice uh, false, uh, to false gods in the temple as they're doing that. So the question is, is that the abomination caused desolation Jesus' warning of? Um, and that the, the brutality is so bad in the city that they talk about the mothers are being starved out who are roasting their own children to eat. Um, that the, um, that the, they were, people were being set on fire but, and the city was being sacked and, and burned to the ground. But as it was happening, the blood was flowing down the streets so, so heavily that it was like rivers of blood just quenching the fires. Um, this destruction of Jerusalem that happened between 67 and 70 AD. Um, and the question is, is that the great tribulation Jesus is referring to? Potentially. Potentially. There's some scholars who say, yep, that's what he's referring to. Some are saying, well, that's the first one and then there's a second one to come. Yes, sir? Just to add support for that, do you know how long that was from the time that Titus had uh, sieged it to the time that it was erased? The Neronian persecution and destruction of Jerusalem was about three and a half years, which is what a lot of guys press into and say, see, three and a half years, that's the timetable we're given, 42 months, 1260 days, etc., etc. So, yeah. Um, potentially, that's the connection, some guys argue. So, um, I don't have time to get into all of that, but that's that's an argument that some make. I don't know that. Uh, yeah, let let me push further into it, and then I'll say something. Okay. So you notice this great tribulation. What's the reference to? All we know is there's some kind of great tribulation. Potentially, it's taken care of there. Potentially, it's got a twofold meaning. It's taken care of there, and it's to come. Okay. But clearly the early church was in some kind of tribulation. That is easily described here. You guys follow me on that? Alright, verse 26. So if they say, look, he is in the wilderness. Talk about the Christ. Do not go out. They say, look, he is in the inner rooms. Do not believe it. By the way, um, there were lots of Christ. Josephus tells us there were many men out calling themselves Messiah during these um, years. He's a Jewish historian, not a Christian. Jewish historian of the first century. who says there were lots of people claiming to be Messiah. People were going out to the wilderness, etc., to follow them. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Um, ugh, right? Okay. So here it comes. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the power of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call they'll gather his elect from the four winds 
from one end of the heaven to the other. Now, this clearly sounds like an end-time return of Christ prophecy. And I think maybe it is. But I also want to reference the fact that um, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken, is all apocalyptic language. And it's not only used here. This language is used with regard to the destruction of Babylon. It's used with the destruction with regard to the destruction in the Old Testament. This language is used with regard to the destruction of a few different empires. Okay, did you guys hear that? So I know this says, "Man, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. Powers of the heavens will be shaken." We haven't seen anything like that. Well, if you're an Old Testament reader, you know that the Jews have seen something like that multiple times. Because any time God comes in judgment and destroys a nation. It's described this way. The moon turned to blood. The sun was darkened. The stars fell from the skies. That's how he describes the destruction of Babylon. And other nations in the Old Testament. Um, My point is, that language is not unique just to the destruction of Jerusalem or this particular prophecy. That's normal apocalyptic literature uh, or language used with the destruction of lots of empires in the Old Testament. Are you guys understand what I'm what I'm saying there? So while we read that and automatically assume that's the end of the world, um, for the Jews they probably would have heard this and thought that was the end of the world too, because clearly the temple being destroyed for them is the end of all things, right? Um, now that may be talking about a future apocalyptic return of Christ, and what happened in AD 67 to 70. Don't, don't misunderstand me. Maybe referring to both. Okay, But just to take the language nakedly by itself and say, well, none of that's ever happened, that's not true. Go read the Old Testament prophets. You'll see this language with reference to the destruction of other empires. Alright. Yes, sir? Um, with the destruction of the temple, to understand correctly, for them, that would mean complete separation from God and damnation because they have no way to reconcile their sin. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so that would be the end of the world for them. Completely. Oh, that would be the end of the world. Yeah. There's no... Yeah, yeah. All right. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory. And there's some question as to what is this coming on the clouds a reference to. Maybe it's a reference to him coming as the king in judgment. Okay? Maybe it's a reference to his return. Um, this language is Danielic language, by the way, the Son of Man. But in Daniel, when he comes on the clouds, he comes on the clouds where... Do you guys, do you guys know the reference? comes on the clouds of Daniel. Okay, look at Daniel chapter 7. Keep, keep your hand there in Matthew 24. Look at Daniel chapter 7. And... Um, and look at verse 13. I saw in night vision, in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. Okay, came with the clouds. You guys see the language? Matthew's taking, or Jesus is taking it from Daniel. With the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came. Now, where does he come? Where, where is he coming with the clouds of heaven? To the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. So here the reference of the coming with the clouds of heaven is coming actually to the Father and, and receiving his 
his right to rule. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So here when he comes with the clouds of heaven, um, he comes to the Ancient of Days to rule and reign. You guys follow me on that? He's, it's, it's, it, it's likely a reference to his ascension and his present intercession as king. Now, that language gets picked up. Go back to Matthew, go back to Matthew and look at chapter 26. Because we'll see that language again. And look at verse 57 of Matthew 26. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At least, at last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Of course, he's talking about what? His body. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, now notice this phrase, from now on. Now what's what's about to happen to Jesus? His crucifixion and resurrection, right? From now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Isn't that interesting? He's telling this, these guys in this trial, by the way, this is a powerful scene, incidentally, in the trial, he has just called himself the Danielic Son of Man in, in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and following, who is going to have the authority to rule all nations. Right? He just called himself that. And he's telling them, from now on, from the time you crucify me and, re- and I resurrect, from that this point on, from... He's at the end of his life. These are the last day, right? It was life here on earth. From now on, you will see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven at the right hand of power. Now, how could they possibly see that? He's ascended to heaven where he rules and reigns. Isn't that interesting? So the question is, what what does that mean in Matthew 24 when it says, you'll see the sign of the Son of Man coming with the clouds? Is it talking about his present rule over the nations and his and his judgment on the people as he as he is now the king? He's unleashing his judgment on Jerusalem for their for their rejection of him, which he prophesies in Luke chapter um, nineteen that he will do. You, you guys follow me on that, okay? Um, so so there's there's some question about that language. By the way, when you get to into Matthew twenty eight. Jesus meets the disciples. What's his what's his first state what's his statement to them there? Matthew twenty eight, eighteen. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Sounds like a fulfillment of what he said here, right? Mm-hmm. And Daniel seven. Okay, yes, sir. Uh it just seemed uh, that in uh, verse sixty four where he uh he says that you that the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of power and coming. Yep. It's like there's 
That's almost like a two-tiered prophecy there, right? Okay, and he's coming on the clouds. Yeah. Yeah, it seems to be this reference, I think, to ascension, rule, judgment. In other words, I'm gonna, I think coming on the clouds is a reference to the fact that he's going to come in judgment on them. You think you're trying in judging me. Is it... Sorry, someone. Oh, Keith? Real quick, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a lot of Old Testament language about clouds and judgment. Oh, yeah, there's absolutely... Right? Throughout the Old Testament, clouds are connected... This idea of coming with the clouds is connected with judgment. That's true. Uh, were you going to ask a question? Keith stole it. Okay, good, oh, Keith. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Those tribes are a reference, by the way, are the tribes of the land. That's a reference to the Jewish tribes. They're going to mourn because of this destruction that comes upon them. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. And there's some question about what's happening here. It's called gathering as elect. Um, my, my point is, uh, is there language in here that may push us future? Yes. Is there language in here that can be explained in the context of, of, the, of that, that generation? Go on, verse 32. From the, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things, things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I think we can argue. I think, in fact, scholars do argue. Not all of them. They disagree on these passages. I mean, massively disagree on these passages. I think we can argue that up to verse 35 is a reference only to the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem through AD 70. That everything up to that point is only talking about that. It's also possible to argue that it's talking about that and something future as well. That's also possible. Okay, so I, I want to be clear. I think it's possible that Jesus answers their second question. And what will be the sign of the coming of the and of, of your coming in the close of the age? He answers their second question starting at verse 36. So the first all the way through verse 35. He's answering their first question, when will these things be? Well, we the sign of your coming, and, and the close of the age, he's answering starting at verse 36. Two questions, two answers. I think that's possible. Um, why? Because Luke 21 doesn't have what's in verse 36 and following. And they only, remember I told you in Luke 21, they only ask the one question about the destruction of the temple? Mm-hmm. These things? And they get all this same information in Luke 21. Some diff- a little bit different language here and there that gives us specificity, like you're going to see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, etc. But they get all this same language in Luke 21. What they don't get is what comes in Matthew 24, 36 and following. But what they also don't have in Luke 21 is the second question that's in Matthew 24. Are you guys following me? That's why I tend to read. Now, this is my bias. I'm just being up front. Of all the scholars... I, when I've read them, I am most satisfied with the argument that Luke 24 through verse 35 is talking about what happens up to AD 70. And then Luke 24 verse 36 and following is what's talking about as, is, is the answer to the second question. I mean, sorry, Matthew. Thank you. Thank you, um, Josh. Matthew 24 all the way to verse 35 
Matt, that's a very helpful clarification, Josh, <laughs> especially for those listening on the audio. Matthew 24 through verse 35, I, I would actually argue is talking about, is answering the first question, and the second question is being answered in Matthew 24, verse 36 and following. That's what I would argue um, for a variety of reasons. I haven't even gotten into all of them. I'm just basically scratching the surface. And that all this tribulation that's largely being referred to here is the tribulation that is taking place up to AD 70. Um, and that's why this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Because generation, incidentally, that word generation, gene in the Greek, is usually, in the, in the Greek understanding, is, is about a 40-year period of time. In other words, they thought of generations as every 40 years. Okay? So Jesus dies in approximately 80, 30 to 30, 80, 30 to 33. <coughs> Jerusalem and temple that is destroyed by 80, 70. Would that fit a generation for them? Yes. Yes, sir. In chapter 23, when you're referencing in 24 of this generation, is that the same term as in uh, 23 there at the end when he's talking to the... In Matthew 23? Yeah. Where he says... Uh, Verse 36, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Um, is that the same language? Yeah, I think so. That, well, that is definitely the same word. But um, I would have to push into Matthew, Matthew 23 a little harder before I could answer what exactly he's saying there. But, but yeah, yeah. I think it's the same, same, same Greek word, if that's what you're asking. Um, now... Now, why do I say the second question is being asked in verse 36? But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. What day and hour? What will be the sign of your coming in the close of the age? Concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not in the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. It's a really strange thing for Jesus to say, I don't know, but, but after, right after I gave you multiple verses answering your question about when it's going to be. In other words, he spent... 30 plus verses saying here's what's going to be but I don't know <laughs> is that what's happening or is he answering the second question now you guys follow me on that and that's what guys get into the discussion of for as were the days of Noah so will be the coming of the son of man for as in those days there, before the flood they were eating and drinking marrying giving marriage until the day of Noah, when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away so will be the coming of the son of man then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, one left. Two will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one left. So it's talking about this judgment that's coming on the earth in the comparison with the flood that comes upon the earth and some are saved out of it and you know are, are on the remain on the boat, some are swept up in the flood, right? But no, therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not respect, or excuse me, expect. You do not expect. And then he goes on and gives these parables about the end of all things, right? His coming, and are you preparing yourself for the end? All the way through Matthew 25 with the sheep and the goats. Um, where that seems like the very end of all things, right? The judgment, the separation of sheep and goats cast into hell in, in the new heavens and new earth. And so it seems like he's transitioned. All right. Um, 
we haven't even looked at Luke 21. What I would tell you is go read Luke 21 and the answer to the question. Go read at some point and the answer to the first question and compare that to Matthew 24 through verse 35 and ask the question, is Jesus answering the same question in Matthew 24 um, 4 through 35 that he's answering in Luke 21? 3 and fall. You guys follow me on that? And then, is there new information starting at verse 36? And does that explain why in Matthew you have two questions, whereas in Luke you only have the one? Reference the temple. I think so. I could be wrong. Okay. Um, a lot of scholars would disagree with me. Very respectable, solid scholars would disagree with me. Very respectable, solid scholars would agree with me. Um. And, and I found out I, I, I found out from Dr. Beale that my use of the Greek isn't too bad. So um, we, we, we got in a, we got in a two-hour discussion. It was I don't know, part of it was maybe a half hour on the, the use of a Greek participle in Matthew 28, and he and I disagreed on it, and we were explaining our various grammatical understandings of the, the Greek participles with regard to a main verb and and, um, and I thought, gosh. You know, we've had a pretty good discussion. I still don't buy his view, um, and he wasn't buying mine. So he went back and then then sent me an email saying, "Hey, you, I think you're right." I went back and studied it. I think you're right. I think I'm. Framed? I think I'm wrong. I think I'm wrong. I framed the email. It's yeah. a great moment of great <laughs> <laughs> moment of great humility for him. A great pride for me. <laughs> I almost needed to repent after I read the email. <laughs> anyway, all right, I did. I, was like, I got something right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what's that? Yeah, um, yeah. So anyway, he's. We actually argued, but if you want to know, we were just we were debating the participle "go" in Matthew twenty-eight uh, nineteen. We were debating that participle. So all right, um, and how it's being used by Matthew. And he actually said his argument from Second Chronicles 36 gels better with the, the way I'm using the participle in Matthew 28, 19 than the way he is. And so anyway, he thinks, he thinks that's probably true now. All right, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. So th- there's going to be some kind of intensifying tribulation and apostasy prior to the return of Christ. The question is, is that what Matthew 24 is about? Right? You guys follow me on that? It, it may or may not be. All right. Now, my point is, I'm not saying absolutely Matthew 24 is not about a time of great tribulation to come. I'm just saying it may not be about that. There's lots of good reasons to argue that it's about the tribulation the actual disciples, apostles, early church went through up to AD 70, the Jews went through. You guys, you guys follow me on that? That they suffered under, under the Neronian persecution and, and General Titus is sacking the city. There's a lot of reason to believe that. All right. Let's look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, though, because this is clearly about the end. Look at verse 1. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with Him, we ask you, brothers. Now this is clearly about the second coming. How do I know that? Paul says, We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. In other words, it hasn't come. Okay, It hasn't come. Don't worry, it hasn't come. Now, how are they going to know it's come? 
Let no one deceive in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Um, now, this whole issue of the mystery of, of, of the lawless one, I don't have time to get into, but the idea is, is that that day when, when, when he returns is not coming until after the lawless one is revealed, the son of destruction is revealed. Um, I think this likely means there is a coming Antichrist um, who has not yet appeared on earth. Um, now, that doesn't mean that there aren't Antichrists. We'll get to that in a minute. Now, it goes on to say, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so he takes a seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. The reason I don't think this is a reference to um, what we see in Matthew 24, and then thus Paul's writing before AD 67, right? And therefore now it's fulfilled in AD 67, like a full preterist would say. They're, they're heretics, by the way, full preterists. The partial preterists are not. Okay, so there's partial preterists, full preterists. Partial preterist is someone who believes that most of the events you read in Revelation, Matthew 24, etc., took place between AD 67 and 70. I, I likely fall in a lean toward partial preterism. Full preterism, that's just a t- historical view on it. Full preterism is the idea that Jesus already returned. Okay? Um, that, that, that view has been pretty thoroughly debunked over the years. I don't have time to get into it. It's considered a heretical view. But um, I take the temple of God there with Beal to mean the church. Because of the phrase, the temple of God, now it's used over and over in the New Testament. If you weren't here, there to hear him talk about that, um, when the audio gets up, go listen to it. He just goes over how the temple of God phrase is used technically throughout the New Testament as re- a reference to the church, um, himself and the church. Proclaiming himself to be God. In other words, I think this is an Antichrist figure who actually rules and reigns in the church. Proclaims himself to be the object of worship. Now... In the 16th century, in the 17th century, in the 18th century, it was not unusual for them to refer to this person as who? The Pope. Why? Because where is the Pope ruling? In the church. And what do you call the Pope? Holy Father. The Vicar of Christ. Okay, Holy Father is a reference to who? The Father. What else do you call him? The Vicar of Christ. That's a New Testament phrase for the Holy Spirit. And he's also called the head of the church. And what's Jesus called in Colossians 1? The head of the church. You, you guys follow that? So he's, he's referenced by the Roman Catholic Church with all three titles of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if you're living in the 16th or 17th century, he's not only ruling the world as far as the church is concerned and directing worship to himself, He's completely bankrupt and immoral, stripping people of their money, and he's ruling the world politically. Now, can you see why they would say, there's the Antichrist? Okay? Uh, Now, do I think the Pope is the Antichrist? Um, The current one? Probably not. He's not probably spectacular enough to be. But, but, um, but, but, yeah, it's a big letdown. He's a big letdown. Um, Potentially in the future, he may be. Now, just so you know, there are some who view, who say that there's there's no coming Antichrist because that this Antichrist is a concept that happens over and over and over again. Now, where do they get that from? Anybody know? First John. They get it from First John in two two eighteen, right? It is the last hour, brothers. It is the last hour, little children. It is the last hour. How do you know that? Because Antichrists have come into the world. 
Right? There's many antichrists. In 1 John 4, don't believe every spirit. Right? Because there, the, the spirit of the antichrist is out there. You guys follow me on that? And some people say, well, that's, that's fulfilled over and over and over again in false teachers. However, there's also the idea, I think more rightly, that there is a coming Antichrist, so there's an already not yet to the Antichrist, and I think 2 Thessalonians is teaching that. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, verse 5 of 2 Thessalonians, I told you these things, and you know what is restraining him now, so that, that he may be revealed in this time. Now notice he goes on to verse 7 and say, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so in, until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. In other words, the lawless one has not yet been revealed, but he's already at work. And I think that's what John means in 1 John 2 and, and 4. He's already at work. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the final Antichrist has not yet been revealed. That's, that's how I take 1 John 2 and 4 and 2 Thessalonians 2. Um, but there's all this tribulation that's coming with him, right? This intensification when this man of lawlessness is revealed. This intensification tribulation goes on. And notice the current tribulation. Verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who do not believe the truth and had, but had pleasure and in righteousness. So there's, there, there is this tension in 2 Thessalonians 2 where you're suffering in some way and false prophets are out there teaching and there's some kind of mystery of lawlessness happening and it, you pick that up in 1 John as well. The Antichrist, the spirit of the Antichrist is out there through false teachers and you're suffering tribulation even now but there's one who's coming and it's going to be more intense. Don't worry, you know that the Christ hasn't returned because that lawless one has not yet been revealed. The Antichrist has not yet come. He's restrained. Yeah, he's at work through false teachers, but he's not yet come. You guys follow me on that? And so there's this, I know I'm talking about the Antichrist and the Great Tribulation at the same time, but I can't separate them. Because it seems like the intensification of tribulation is tied to the coming of the lawless one. You guys following me on that? Or the Antichrist? All right. It also appears that believers will experience the Great Tribulation. Now, Matthew 24 is a potential passage where believers experience the Great Tribulation, right? If Matthew 24 is about the future, then it's a potential text where believers experience the Great Tribulation. Um, I don't think it is, which you already know, but let's move on. 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. I'm not even done with my first slide. It's getting depressing. All right, um, but I, I do want to. I do know I've got till seven fifteen, right? Isn't that what I scheduled the class till? Yes. Because I don't have to feel bad. All right. First uh, Thessalonians five. Um, if you remember, in First Thessalonians four, it's talking about the second coming of Christ, right? And being gathered together with Him, the blowing of trumpets, and all this kind of thing. Now, First Thessalonians five. Now, concerning the times and seasons, brothers. You have no need to have anything written to you. I don't need to tell you when this is going to happen. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You know he's coming when nobody expects him. Right? Um, that's why you're always writing yourself. Doesn't mean you know when he's coming. It just means you know. It's some, if I tell you at some point tonight a thief is coming. I didn't tell you what time he's coming. 
what hour? Maybe maybe I'll, I'll make it more maybe less general. Sometime this week, a thief is going to break into your house. I didn't tell you which day or which hour. I just told you at some point in the night during this last this next week, a thief is going to break in your house. What are you going to do if you know that any day this week, a thief's going to break in your house at some point in the night? What are you going to be doing? How many are you going to go to bed, leave your doors unlocked, just lay down, go to sleep? Okay. All right. How many are you going to do that? What are you going to do? Have my arsenal. Ready. You're going to be ready, right? And that's the point of Jesus' language. You're not going to be taken surprise. You might be surprised. Oh, it's today. That part might surprise you. Oh, it's today. Great. Right. But you're not going to be surprised because you expect them at any time. You guys understand the language? All right. You just don't know which day or hour, but you're expecting him. And so you're readying yourself for him. That's the warning. Don't go to sleep, which means don't fall into sin. Don't stop expect. Don't stop living as if he's coming today. All right. Verse 3, while people are saying, there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. You guys know what labor pains upon a pregnant woman are like. Going along, she's very pregnant, she feels fine, boom, they hit, okay? That's what he's saying. There's peace and security, <laughs> sudden destruction, all right? Um, <laughs> all right. <laughs> For you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. We are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of dark, the night of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you were doing. In other words, it seems to be saying that that um, if there's tribulation tied to the return of Christ, because the man of lawlessness comes first, and the tribulation around him, or the great the, the antichrist comes first, and the tribulation intensifies, um, that we're going to be there for all that. So when that not us specifically, but Christians will be there for all that. So that when he returns, we're not surprised. We got to stay awake, waiting for his return. We're not destined for wrath. In other words, we're not going to be cast into hell, which is the clear reference here. Um, but it seems like we might be around for it. Second Thessalonians 2 obviously talks about the intensification of that. Um, arguably, Revelation 7, 13-14 talks about us being around for the tribulation. Now, there's one difficult text which seems to support a removal of the church prior to the tribulation. Okay? In other words, there's one text... It is the strongest pre-tribulational rapture text that pre-tribulational rapture guys have. Okay, you ready? Turn to Revelation chapter 3. At least I got to this. I wanted to get to this today. Um, Revelation chapter 3. And 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 let's look at um, let's look at this letter, in starting in verse seven. And to the angel in the church in Philippi, write the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will and no one opens. In other words, the words of Jesus, right? And the, this this description of Jesus is somehow related. I don't have time to break it all down. Related to the letter to the church, 
right? So, in other words, there are for each of these letters some portion of the description of Jesus from Revelation one and and even more is tied to Jesus. And the reason the description of Jesus is given is because in some way that description of Jesus warns and comforts, warns and encourages the church receiving the letter. Because that description of Jesus is tied to the letter itself. You guys follow me on that? Okay? He's the word he's he the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shuts and no and, and who shuts and no one opens. I know your works, behold I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. See the connection? To the description of Jesus? Right in the language? Alright. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. Um, synagogue of Satan, by the way, is a very specific reference in the first century. Who gathers in synagogues in the first century? What is Jesus calling their synagogue? Their place of worship. Okay? What is, how does Jesus refer to them in John 8? You're not children of Abraham, you're children of the devil because you don't believe in me here he calls their synagogues their place of worship a synagogue of Satan okay now get into this discussion of are they God's people if they don't believe in the Messiah Jesus says in John 8 you're not children of Abraham which means you were not God's people you are children of the devil here Jesus calls their synagogue a synagogue of Satan Okay, um, they reject the Messiah. All right, this isn't a statement about Jesus being anti-Semitic. He is a Jew. Okay, this is a statement about Jesus being anti-rejection of the Messiah. Yes, sir. Would, would you not say he's contrasting a real synagogue with the synagogue of Satan because it says this is a synagogue of Satan with people that say they're Jews and are really not? That's right. And I think that language is a reference to the fact that the true Jew is, Romans chapter 2, is one who's one inwardly, not outwardly. By the circumcision of the heart, not by the circumcision of the flesh. They say they're Jews, but they're not Jews. If they were Jews, they would believe what Abraham believed. Abraham believed in me, they don't. John chapter 8, Romans chapter 2. True Jew is one who's one inwardly. Romans chapter 9 and verse 6. Not all Israel is Israel. Who's Israel? The children of the promise, not the children of the flesh. Those who believe. All right. Um, but yes, it's a great question because of that. So you have to work all that language out. You're exactly right to pick that up and say, how do we work that out? That's how I'm working it out. But some people will disagree with me, even some good scholars. So to, to further your point there. All right. They're not, but lie, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Wow, that's a great statement to a church that's being persecuted, huh? These people are persecuting you, and they all have learned that I love you. By the way, in the first century, the Jews did accuse the Christians of being a cult and did turn them over to the Roman Empire to be persecuted and killed. Incidentally, initially the Christians were not being persecuted by the Roman Empire because they were just considered some version of Jew. But eventually the Jews said, no, 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 they're a cult. And then the Roman Empire turned on them. Um... So, alright. And actually accused them of quite a few things that go wrong in the first century. Accused the Christians of it. He says, I'll make them come about before your feet and they will learn that I've loved you. 
Because you've kept my word about patient endurance. Here's the verse. You ready? Because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth or dwell on the land, depending on how you translate that. Notice that. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming to, on, the whole earth, on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, or also translated as the one who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Um, which again, there's that temple language. And by the way, to sort of follow up on that, the question about synagogue and they're not really Jews, here, who's the real temple? Right? The people I'm going to make pillars in the temple of my God in the same passage. Never shall he go out of it, the temple, and I'll write on in the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. So who's the new Jerusalem? The Christians, not these in the synagogue of Satan. You guys follow the contrast there? Um, Which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name, the name of Jesus. He was an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So notice the connections here. Um, they're, 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 if they keep the word of patient endurance, they're going to be kept from the hour of trials coming on the whole world. Um, it's going to try those who dwell on the earth. And um, there's a connection here to overcoming, right? You guys follow that? The one who overcomes, I will do these things. Um, so what are they talking about? Now, again, that word, the whole world. Remember our study on the whole world, okay? This particular word again, there are other words for world, by the way. This particular word is again the oikomenos. So the question is, is that the whole world, i.e., or is that just the tribulation that's coming on the Roman Empire? You guys follow me on that? Not the whole planet, but on the Roman Empire. That's what I think is, is he's talking about here is the tribulation that's coming there. And then when it says, uh, to try those, you know, he says, I will keep you from. Now, what a pre-tribulational rapture guy is going to say is, and this is a difficult verse, admittedly, but a pre-tribulational rapture is going to say, guy is going to say is, he's going to keep us from the great tribulation at the end, and the way he's going to keep us from it is by, re- by rapturing us out. So we're not present. But the question we have to ask is, what is the overcoming language tied to? What is the I will keep you? That Greek phrase, um, tereo ek in the Greek is the phrase, what is that? I, I will keep you from tereo ek. What is that a reference to? But it's not really tereo because that's the uh, that's the first person. But anyway, the point is that's the Greek verb, and and ek is from. But I'll keep you from um, that that trial that's coming on the whole world. Okay, where does that language come from? Overcoming language come from, and and um, the whole world. Okay, the whole world could be oikomenos. We talked about that. What about that? I will keep you from language. Okay, what about that language? Has that ever been used by John? Okay, so we can ask the question, has it ever been used by John? Look at John chapter 17. Go there. John chapter 17. Now, as we come into John chapter 17, I want to reference first this idea of the hour that's coming, because he's talking about, again, this hour that's coming on the world. But look at verse chapter 16 and verse 25. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name. I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. 
um, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father, have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, oh, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Thank God, right? Okay, we all hate figurative speech. All right, that's why Revelation is difficult. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you have peace. In the world you will have what? Tribulation. Who is going to have tribulation? The Christians are. In the world you have tribulation, but, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So you're going to have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now in all the letters... He who overcomes, he who overcomes, he who overcomes. Same language, okay? Now let's go on to John 17. So Jesus, in this context, says, take heart, you're going to have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. He's talking about this hour that's coming at his resurrection and ascension. You're going to have tribulation, but behold, I've overcome the world. Then he starts to pray. Now look down at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. In other words, who did he give them? He's talking about the disciples here, right? Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Now they, and again, that phrase, kept your word. Remember in, you remember in, in Revelation 3 of the Church of Philadelphia? Because you've kept my word, Jesus says to them. Again, correspondence and language there, because you've kept my word. They've kept your word. Now, that they, now they know that everything that you've given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and they have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, now there is this word, tereo, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Though that language isn't specific enough. While I was with them, I kept them, Tereo again, in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and, have not, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask, now here's the verse, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you... Keep them from, tereoak, the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Okay, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Now, that's the same Greek phrase. Do you guys notice the, the language similarities between the Church of Philadelphia and what he's talking about with the disciples here? Okay, there's tribulation, you're going to be in the midst of it. Um, uh, uh, while I'm gone, I'm praying for you. I, I've overcome the world, and therefore you're going to overcome the world. You've kept the word, and therefore... Um, I'm praying, and what does he say? I'm asking the Father to keep you from Satan. Okay? But but what does he clearly mean there when he says to keep you from the evil one? To keep the disciples from the evil one. Does he mean that the evil one will not be able to kill them physically? He's talking about spiritually protecting them, doesn't isn't he? Because Jesus even tells Peter that Satan's going to come and sift him like wheat and put him to death at some point. Right? So clearly Jesus does not mean that he's not going to be physically harmed in tribulation. He means that spiritually he's going to be kept. He, they, 
In other words, here, spiritually, they're going to be overcomers. They've kept the word. When the tribulation comes, they will be overcomers. Same thing in Church of Philadelphia. There's going to be some kind of intensification of tribulation, I think, in their near future. The letter of the Church of Philadelphia in Revelation. You got, there's going to be some kind of intensification of tribulation. You're already being persecuted by the Jews. I'm going to deal with them. Tribulation's going to increase in the area. Some of you are going to get killed in it. Because they're martyred all the time. Right? But I want you to understand I'm going to keep you from the Great Tribulation that's coming on the world. I'm going to keep you from it. I think that's a letter to a historical church who God is saying, and then he goes on to say, Jesus goes on to say, to the one who overcomes. Okay. I'm, going to, I'm the overcomer. You're going to go through tribulation. I'm going to keep you through the tribulation. You're going to overcome because you've kept my word. You're going to overcome. I think that's what he's... I, in other words, when Jesus writes this real letter, historical letter, to a historical group of people, it has a historical meaning that applies to them. This is a real church. The letter actually encourages them. Um, what do we draw from that? We draw from that and this in John 17 that Jesus keeps us from the evil one being able to strip us away. No one will be able to snatch you out of my hand. That doesn't mean Jesus keeps us from tribulation physically or persecution or martyrdom. It means that it keeps us spiritually. Satan cannot snag our souls, if you will, so that we overcome. I think that's the reference there. So I think we experience tribulation now. I think there will be an intensification when the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist is revealed at the great tribulation and great apostasy of the church. Um, so I think the Antichrist is already and not yet. I think the tribulation is already and not yet because I think it will intensify under the Antichrist and then the, the end will come. So now I covered the Olivet Discourse and the Great Tribulation of the Antichrist in kind of brief fashion. So we'll get to Daniel 77's next. Any, any questions? How many of you guys have heard any of that before? Okay, a few of you. Is that surprising to you guys? Why I end up leaning there in these arguments, if I want to come back to it, is I believe the Bible text has a real meaning to the actual people who received it. I believe it has a real meaning for us too. But we have to start with the actual audience who received it. This kind of dispensational premillennial scheme makes major portions of Scripture completely nonsensical to the audience who received that Scripture. And no comfort to them at all. How would that comfort you if, if Jesus sent you a letter? You're in persecution as a church and Jesus sends you a letter saying, Someday, thousands of years in the future... I'm going to protect your church. <laughs> you, you guys follow me on that? Thousands of years in the future, I'm going to protect your church someday. No relevance to you right now. Just know it's coming. Okay? This generation will pass away. I mean, really, you'll die, but 
some generation, thousands of years in the future, will see all this to answer your question. I hope that's helpful. You, you guys follow me on that? Um, that doesn't mean it's not, it's not also for us. I just want to get back to the idea when you read Scripture, you understand that, that lots of it is not written to us, but it is for us. Right? It's written to a specific audience. It is for us by way of application um, of the principles and the truths in it. And the historical story, in that sense, continues. I mean, if you will, the book of Acts continues because Jesus is still spreading his name across the earth and there are still promises in Scripture that are, that are going to be fulfilled at the return of Christ. I think, I think a few of them are. The intensification of tribulation under the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist who finally comes followed by the return of Christ, right? The resurrection of the, the living and the dead, the judgment, the final judgment, separation of the sheep and goats, um, hell, new heavens, new earth. Um, I think it's actually, the story's that simple. We're in tribulation as a church. We're in this world. He doesn't take us out of it. He keeps us in it. But he protects us from the evil one so that we overcome um, in the midst of the tribulation and martyrdom we're spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth one day the tribulation we now experience will even get worse <clears throat> under the man of lawlessness of the antichrist and then Jesus will return and destroy him and he will resurrect the living and the dead and judge them and separate them into the new heavens and new earth or into hell so then what about the millennium what about the 77s? These are the questions we'll turn to in the coming weeks. All right. Any questions? In other words, my eschatology is a lot simpler. You don't need a big, long timeline on your wall. Huge charts. Four blood moons. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The blood moon happened, by the way. We're all still here. <laughs> all right. Um, though Putin did make a move on Syria, so maybe he's the bear. <laughs> Yeah, okay. All right, now. Okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. He's the bear. Okay, all right. Um, whatever you do, if you're going to be a dispensational premillennialist, follow guys like John MacArthur, not guys like John Hagee. Okay? Just, is that all right? So I respect a dispensational premillennialist like John MacArthur. I have no respect for a heretic like John Hagee. So, so, uh, so pick the right guys to follow if you're going to go down that road. Um, and there are good dispensational premillennialists. There are good ones out there of good arguments. I don't agree with them, but they have good arguments. Um, and then there are really bad ones. All right. What was okay. John Hagee's prediction with the blood moon? Did he make a specific one or just the, the start of You the know, I didn't bother to read his book, to be honest with you. I'm poking fun at it. I didn't bother to read it because it's dumb. Um, but it... <laughs> it well, tell us what you really think. Yeah, it's just about this idea that there's going to be this kind of all these spectacular end time events are going to be accompanying these four blood moons. But they all keep having signs and the signs come. But other than Putin starting in Syria, you don't have things other than that really happening. Oh yeah, you know Obama clearly probably the Antichrist, right? Um, he's he's made a pact with Iran and and you know. It's all staging to go against the Jews, the people of God. Um, you know, that's that whole worldview. Um, 
It's a worldview, by the way. It's a worldview. It affects foreign policy. American foreign policy is largely directed by that worldview. Um, incidentally. I, by the way, it's, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan of protecting Israel because they're the one free nation in the Middle East who actually doesn't ha- sending terrorist cells to try to kill us. At the same time, I don't, I'm not a fan of protecting Israel because they're the end time people of God and whatever. I, that, that to me is, it's just, I don't want to, I don't want to see any people group get genocided by the Muslims who would like to throw them all into the sea. It's their stated objective to wipe them from the face of the earth. Clearly not a free people. Right, so I, I, um, I would prefer to. I mean, I'm glad that we align with them; they're an ally. Uh, but that's just the geopolitical, and I think to some degree a morality issue. Right? I don't see anybody genocided. Not a prophetic issue. A little different there. So, like any other ally in a similar situation. Yeah, I wouldn't want to see England genocided either. If all of Europe decided they want to genocide England, I would say we should protect them. Right, you know, same kind of thing. It's just for whatever reason, all the Middle East essentially wants to genocide the the Jews, you know, in Israel. My my guess is that's tied to Jesus' point that he makes in Luke twenty one. Because the judgment on you for the rejection is that you're going to be trampled underfoot by the Gentile nations until the end comes. That's judgment on them. Jesus says that. Yes, sir. It's not. It's not um, just reserved to that, though. That's been the, their history. Yeah. They've been trampled on prior to what their uh, rejection of Christ was. Yeah. Well, they were they were trampled on for the rejection of the covenant over and over and over again. So if you go back, that's exactly right. You go back to the Old Testament. Every time they're trampled on by a foreign nation, why is it? They reject the covenant of God. Right? And in this case, they rejected the new covenant in the Messiah, which is the fulfillment of all the previous ones. Um, and so he says, you'll be, you'll, be, you'll be trampled underfoot till the end. There just seems to be no end to that for them until, I, I would argue, the return of Christ. Is there a, follow, a question? Is, is there a distinction to the reference to a Pharisee and a Jew? Are they one and the same? Oh, no, there's a distinction for sure. A Pharisee would be a particular kind of Jew. Yeah, but a lot of the harsh the harsh words that come follow comments that the Pharisees are making, but then not too long after that, Jews is used, so in a general sense. Yeah, yeah, in a general sense, because Jesus' ire is largely targeted at the religious leaders, not at the average man on the street. With that said, his warnings go to every Jew. If you're not going to embrace me as the Messiah that I've been promised all the way through, you're going to face judgment. So his his warning goes to all the Jews, but clearly his particular ire is targeted at the religious leaders. And I would say, by the way, the same thing comes over with Paul. When Paul sees weak, helpless women caught up and, and, and ensnared by... Um, false teachers or heretics, what does Paul do? Paul's like, gosh, we got to save those weak women from being ensnared, those widows, etc., from being ensnared by the false teachers. But but he doesn't have nearly as generous words for the false teachers. You, you guys follow me on that? So 
So in the New Testament even, I think Jesus does it. I think the apostles follow him on that. Jesus, though he says judgment's coming on any Jew who... And by the way, anyone who rejects him as Messiah. But, but any Jew who rejects him as Messiah in the context of the Gospels, his real ire is saved for the religious leaders who are leading them astray. Right? And he feels... Uh, when he sees the multitudes, he's like, he has compassion on them as like sheep without a shepherd. Right? And he wants to shepherd them because their shepherds are false shepherds. Again, you go back to Ezekiel and, um, and the passages in Ezekiel, I think 33, um, 34, right in there. But the passage of Ezekiel where, where, where the Lord says, you've been a false shepherd, you fattened yourselves and starved out the sheep. I'm going to come and shepherd them myself. Right? And then he says, David's going to come and shepherd them. But David's already dead by the time that passage happens. Thus, we know this is the messianic shepherd who's coming. Jesus refers to himself as, I'm going to come shepherd them myself. And so I think when you see the apostles following Jesus, how do they respond to false teachers? False teachers, they have very strong words for. The followers of false teachers, they warn them, you're running down the road to destruction, but they have great compassion for them. They're weak, they're helpless, they've been led astray. You guys follow me on that? Very different thing for for religious leaders. That's why I would say, incidentally, when we're dealing with a religious leader, a pastor, um, a teacher in the church, a leader of an organization, um, and they're teaching a false gospel, they may be intentionally deceiving, or as Paul says, they may be both deceiving and themselves deceived, I don't know, but the language for them is, you're in trouble. Not many of you should be teachers, my brothers, for those who teach incur a stricter judgment. Um, the language for them is strong. Whereas the weak people who follow them, the language is like, we've got to save those people from them. But you, you guys understand the distinction there? So you got friends who are caught up in a cult? Don't go bang on your friends who are being caught up in a cult. Right? They're, they're not leaders. They're, they're, they've been deceived. You want to pray for them, be compassionate to them, try to see them saved. That's different from the guys who show up knocking at your door trying to deceive them. You guys understand the distinction there? Who themselves may be deceived, and I'm not saying you should be mean to them, but my point is is that let's make a differentiation between a leader who teaches falsely and a follower who gets caught up in false teaching. Those are very different things. And incidentally, it seems like that the false teachers are always targeting the weak, the poor, the women, especially lonely women, single women or widows, etc. They tend to target them uh, because they're the most vulnerable. Right? Um, so harsh words are reserved for them in the New Testament, really. Very harsh words. To, to answer your question, Jeff. I mean, there's a lesson, I think, there for us. The way Jesus deals with the false teachers versus the, the people who are caught up. With the people who are caught up with the false teaching, he's weeping over them and wants to see them saved. He's warning them you're going to be destroyed, but he's weeping over it. With the false teachers, he's not weeping. He's whipping and calling them <laughs> hypocrites. You'll cross over land and sea only to make a, a single convert, and he's going to end up twice the son of hell that you are. You blind guides, hypocrites. Right, you know, I mean, it's pretty strong language. When he sees Jerusalem, though, he's weeping over them, going, you know, why don't you... You guys understand the distinction there? There's this anger toward the religious leaders that isn't directed toward the people who are being caught up, being falsely taught by the religious leaders. That's why the language in Revelation 3 is alarming to me. 
Yeah. But I was trying to, because the synagogue of Satan statement, right? Mm -hmm. So I was trying to discern whether, figure out, is he, is he really talking about all of them, or is he talking about those who represent who would be the teachers in the synagogue and all that? So I. Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know. I mean, lots of Jews, not just religious leaders, were turning the Christians over to be persecuted by the Roman Empire. That was a pretty normal pretty normal thing that was happening in that century. So he could be referring to the whole synagogue. Because, I mean, gosh, they're, they're intentionally outing you and getting you, uh, you murdered. They know you're going to get killed or jailed or beaten. That's pretty, so it's pretty bad behavior. It's, it's, it's a little bit like that if you're a Christian in, in, in Iraq right now, and, um, and there's Jews there, and they go around saying to ISIS, those guys over there, those are Christians. Right? They know what's going to happen to you. You get your head cut off. And they do it. Uh, I, I, would, I would argue that I'm sure God would reserve pretty strong, Jesus would reserve pretty strong words for people who would do that to other people.